before we get going this morning, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to help us as we work our way through the Word. Oh, Father, we know that you are the source of all knowledge, all revelation, all truth. And we know, Lord, that the only way any of us will come to understand the truth is if we would pursue it in a way that is obedient to you and honoring of your Son. Those things which you have spoken can only be fully appreciated and grasped if they are done through faith. Believing that what you say, how you say it, and what it is that you are accomplishing through your word is ultimately meant for our final deliverance and our present sanctification. So Lord, as we begin this Christmas season reflecting on the gift of your Son, as we look at this famous passage from Isaiah 9, and more specifically the text that preceded it, I just pray, Lord, that we would understand that you are the God of promise, and that you would help us to hope in your promise. We ask you, Lord, by your Spirit to open our minds to see, and we pray, God, that you would give us faith that works itself out in courageous obedience. We pray you do this by your Son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know that Christmas is near when you start to see the lights going up on the houses. As we get closer and closer to December 25th, more and more houses will start putting up their Christmas lights. And as you drive through the neighborhoods on dark, wintry evenings, you will see all the neighborhood aglow. For me, Christmas is my most favorite of all holidays, and I am very eager and very disciplined about the hanging of my Christmas decorations. They generally go up prior before November 11th, before Remembrance Day, because you're never sure when the snow might fly, and I don't like to be on the roof when it's snowy and icy, but I hold off turning them on until just after Remembrance Day. I'm one of those guys that kicks off the party early before November has even passed. I've got the Christmas lights turned on. This is an interesting tradition that began first in the Mediterranean and more specifically Europe, and there is some significance for it. If you walk down the city streets of Kamloops, you'll see the trees are decorated with Christmas lights. You'll see that people undoubtedly will put candles in their windows, and sometimes they'll even decorate an entire Christmas tree and stick it right in front of their bay window. This idea of light is central to what we're doing at Christmas time. Sometimes when we have traditions that are rooted in historical past, we sometimes forget the meaning of those traditions if we're not careful to understand the history behind those traditions. Here's the meaning. December 25th, for the Northern Hemisphere at any rate, takes place right at the darkest hour of the calendar year. The days are shortest there, the night is longest. I'm, I'm hearing some whispering. I think you guys have the, uh, that microphone back there on. <laughs> Sorry, I was just having this weird moment where I'm like, who's whispering to me? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, the days are shortest, the nights are longest. It's the darkest time of the year. And it is at this time of the year in terms of honoring Jesus and the birth of Christ at Christmas, that we put up lights. Light is a symbol of hope. 
More specifically, light is a symbol of promise. And it comes from this text right here that we're going to look at today. Everybody is familiar with the famous verse from Isaiah chapter 9 that says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We are all familiar with that text. We are all aware that it is ultimately referencing the birth of Jesus as he is born in the house of David, in the city of David, in Bethlehem, though he himself comes from, grew up in the city of Nazareth. We're all familiar with the intricate ways that the Lord fulfilled this text, but in context, we're less familiar with what has preceded it, which is the latter half of Isaiah chapter 8. To fully grasp the fulfillment of this prophecy, you have to understand the context in which it was made. Israel is besieged. She faces the threat of invasion. It is almost a certainty that Jerusalem will fall. The king is desperately seeking for political alliances that will save his kingdom. And he's toying with the idea of entering into an alliance with the nation of Assyria. Isaiah is sent to the king and said, don't enter into an alliance with Assyria. This will ultimately be your doom and your destruction. Isaiah says to the king, hope in the Lord. And in order to know that you can hope in the Lord, God told Isaiah that he could offer to the king any sign that the king demanded. Any miracle, any grand miraculous achievement, God would fulfill it in order that the king of Israel would know he could hope in God and not enter into an alliance with Assyria. But the king of Israel had already made up his mind. Assyria, as far as he was concerned, was his best bet. So you have the prophet Isaiah running around saying that we need to trust in God, we need to hope in God, and you have the political establishment saying, no, we've got this, we've already figured out what we're going to do, we are going to make an alliance. And then the whispers begin. That prophet Isaiah and all those guys who are with him, they're like a bunch of terrorists. They're seeking to undermine the throne. They're seeking to subvert the authority of the king. They're saying we should trust in God. They're suggesting that somehow the king isn't trusting in God by entering into an alliance with Assyria. Now, if you're Isaiah or one of his followers, this is not a good rumor to be circulating around. Your neighbors, those who live in the city with you, even family and friends begin to look at you sideways and begin to wonder whether or not you really have their best interests at heart. You begin to doubt. And it is in this context that God speaks to Isaiah. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 11, the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls Conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The reassurance that God gives to the prophet Isaiah is this they're going to call you a conspiracy, a conspiracy person that's working to subvert the throne. They're going to whisper about you. They're going to say bad things about you. Don't agree with them. Don't be in doubt of what I'm telling you. Don't think for a moment that they are right. And this is the reality. All conspiracy that has ever been experienced by man is the conspiracy to draw our faith and our confidence away from God. 
The ultimate conspiracy is that Satan, from Genesis chapter 3, has been working diligently, number one, to get us to trust in anything else besides God, to hope in anyone else besides the Father, and in doing that, he is seeking to destroy us. That is the real conspiracy. Any person who is suggesting that we should be placing our faith and our hope in God, that person is not the worker of conspiracies. That person is not the one working to subvert and undermine true authority. That is the one seeking to uphold true authority. Isaiah is beginning to doubt himself, and God is saying, don't listen to what they are saying. Don't think for a second that you're actually a conspiracy person, that you're a conspirator. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. That you're a conspirator. You're not. You're working for the Lord. Rather than fearing these people, your neighbors, the person you should be afraid of is not them. It's God. And he goes on and he says in verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Him, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And then he will become a sanctuary. A sanctuary. A place where you will be protected if you ultimately fear him. Notice, he goes a step further, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel. That's Israel and that's Judah and Ephraim, the northern tribe. A trap and a stone to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. God is saying, don't, don't be afraid of what these people are saying. Hope in God, and God will be your sanctuary to those who hope in him. That's the first thing that he says. So verse 16, notice the next part of it. Bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. The instruction that God gives to Isaiah as he's struggling with doubt is hold on to the word that God has spoken to you. Bind up the testimony, seal up the teaching, hold on to that. Put it in a safe place. I will wait for the Lord, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. But behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. That word portent is like another way to translate it would be a symbol. What Isaiah is saying here is we're going to bind up this, the testimony, we're going to seal up the teaching, we're going to hold on to that, we're going to put it in a safe place, we're not going to let it go, and in hoping in that, in trusting in what God has spoken, God is going to take our confidence in his word and he's going to make us like, number one, a sign to those individuals who do not believe in God, or a portent, which another way to understand it is a symbol. Signs and symbols point away from themselves to a greater reality. And what Isaiah is saying is by placing our confidence in the teaching, in the word of God, God will use that to make us who believe in his word a symbol, a message to those who do not believe in it. But what about those who do not believe in it? The next verse, verse 19. When they say to you, Inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. The mediums, individuals who consult the dead on behalf of the living, who perform seances and utilize Ouija boards and whatever manner of different techniques that they employ. The idea is that they're trying to seek uh, guidance or direction from beyond the grave. He says, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their gods? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Rhetorically, no, that's ludicrous. Notice again what God says to the teaching 
and to the testimony. He had said to Isaiah, bind it up, seal up, put it away in a safe place. And when the whole world is coming apart and they're saying, we got to have some kind of an answer, we got to have some kind of guidance or direction, quick, let's pull out our Ouija boards. God says, look to the word, look to the scriptures. That's where you need to look for guidance. That's where you need to look for direction. What is the end result of those who consult mediums or who seek for wisdom in foolish places? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and they will turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What Isaiah is saying here is, here's what's going to happen. These people are going to trust in their political alliances with Assyria rather than than hoping in the Lord. It's not going to work out the way they think it's going to work out. And when it all comes apart of the seams, they're going to start consulting everything under the sun besides God, looking for direction, looking for an answer. And the end result of it is that they're going to curse the king that they placed their hope in, who led them into this political alliance in the first place, and they're also going to curse God. They're going to look upward, they're going to see him up there, but ultimately their gaze is going to come back downward. This Decision to trust in man is what has led them into this predicament, but that decision to look to man for the answers, it becomes a stone that they cannot escape from. In the darkest of circumstances, when they made the choice to trust in the king and to trust in political alliances, when that all comes apart and when it all fails, they cannot find it within themselves to repent, to humble, and to come back and say, no, we really should look to the Lord. Their focus will be downward. It will be on the earth. This decision to look to ourselves, to look within ourselves, to find the answer, every time we engage in that, our souls are formed by it so that it becomes our default position. And it's getting us nowhere. The dangers and the uncertainties that Israel faced here are the same that we face today. Terrorism threatens us. Disease still stalks us. Economic times are difficult. And yet, what is the resounding answer to these difficulties? Well, we just completed an election season. The Americans did. And last year, the Canadians completed an election season. And the campaign slogans and the bumper stickers and the advertising and the commercials all say, if this particular candidate is chosen, well, that will be the answer to all our problems. Those of us who get overly worked up about politics, be it American or Canadian or any political scheme, find ourselves identifying with the nation of Israel here in Isaiah chapter 8. Let us hope in the king and his political alliance with Assyria. That's what they said back then. That's what many are saying today. The end result of that, what happened then, is what will happen today. 
Despite their best intentions, and I have no doubt that on the campaign trail, everyone means what they say. Campaigning and governing are two different things, and making promises is easy. Delivering actually is very difficult. Ultimately, they cannot solve all of our problems. And indeed, they'll just make many of them worse. Well, this guy didn't get it done, but don't worry, there's another election coming soon. Isn't that what we all say? The next guy, surely he'll get it done. We're like Israel. We're like Jerusalem, hoping in their king and his political choices. You know, I saw an advertisement Christmas about seven years ago. It was an advertisement for ladies' perfume. I thought it was profound, the promises that it held forth in this particular scent. It started off with an ode to Christmas. It said, The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. And from this, it then somehow made its way to the particular scent that a woman might wear as somehow a tool that will bring about and achieve unity and peace. And I thought that was incredible. I've, some of you ladies smell very nice, but I have never yet smelled a woman who brought about world peace. <laughs> Isn't it ironic how at Christmas time we all look to the problems of the world and we all think, yes, what we need to do is we need to fix the problems of the world and we can do it by selling this particular product. That's ludicrous. And nevertheless, we still look to it. We look to economics, we look to education, we look to foreign policy, we consider our politicians, and everyone is hoping in technology. The most recent gizmo, the most recent gadget will save us. The iPhone can heal what ails our soul. Steve Jobs is convinced of it. The individuals who are hoping in these things are truly delusional. Bertrand Russell famous atheist of the 20th century in his essay, The Free Man's Worship, having considered all of the advances of science, made this profound statement. He's going to describe first what science has achieved for us, what the modern age, the industrial accomplishments have done for us. He's going to describe it, and then he's going to tell us what we can draw from that. Here's what he says in his essay. Such in outline, but even more purposeless than this, more void of meaning than even the outline of this essay, is the world which science presents to us for our belief. Starts off optimistic, doesn't it? Man is the product of causes which had no previous idea of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of an accidental co-location of atoms and molecules. Science presents to us that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of all the ages... All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in that vast death, inevitable, of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must ultimately be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. Wow. He has just described 
abject darkness. This is what science has given us. And so you would think that now he's going to offer the sunny side. Listen to the conclusion he draws. Next sentence. It is only within the scaffolding of these dark truths, only in the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Just when you thought he was going to give you the trick to getting out of the cage, he says, embrace the cage and live there. It's a, the only place that you have. What hopelessness, what darkness. And yet, this was also predicted by the prophet Isaiah. When they are hungry, they will be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. They will turn their faces upward, but then they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Bertrand Russell spent his life considering and consulting, and then he concluded There is no hope. There is no point. Make the best of this time that you have right now, knowing that whatever accomplishment you might make, whatever contribution to humanity you might offer, it will all ultimately fade away when the solar system perishes. Have a great day. Isn't that horrible? Now, see, Christianity says, number one, we cannot actually overcome the darkness. We are always called to resist it, but we cannot overcome it. We are not eager optimists thinking that if we just try harder, if we just look within ourselves, if we just do better, that somehow at the end of the day, perhaps with the next political election, somehow we will achieve the success we've been longing for. Christianity rejects that. We do not possess the answers. We ourselves cannot make it better. Yet, Christianity never gives way to despair. Christianity never says in a pessimistic tone that it is all hopelessness, that we are doomed to this miserable fate that we see on the world, that this is all we have. This is our lot. Christianity doesn't do that either. Christianity says resist the darkness. Know that you yourself cannot overcome the darkness. But... To us, a son is given. To us, a child is born. We cannot conquer the darkness of this earth, but we are given a promise that Jesus is coming, that he has come and he will come again, and that he will conquer the darkness. Look now at chapter 9, what it says in verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He he just described that despite all our best efforts, all we will have at the end of the day, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we apply our mind and we study and we try to make intellectual or philosophical achievements, no matter how hard we work to improve our farming, our crops, there will always be famine. No matter how diligently we apply ourselves to the study of medicine in the hospitals and the universities, there will always be death. We can't achieve anything but 
God can. Those who are in darkness, they, if they look to God, they will see the light. There is a promise of light. Light is the symbol of promise. Step way back out of the text for a second. Just step way back out and think about it. Isaiah has been serving God, and the ultimate reward for that now is that all of his neighbors, all of his friends and family are looking at him sideways and thinking that he's a conspirator and that they probably ought to lock him up. Church history tells us, we don't know this for a certainty, but church history tells us that the ultimate end for the prophet Isaiah is that he was sawn in half with a wooden sword because he wouldn't stop talking about God. And we don't know that, but there seems to be a lot of Uh, evidence that would support that conclusion. So what is the immediate outcome for all of Isaiah's effort? A horrible ending. What is the immediate outcome for faithfully serving God? The immediate outcome is more pain and more heartache. But what God does to sustain Isaiah through that is to give him a promise which shines on the horizon like a point of light in the midst of abject darkness. Light is the symbol within Scripture of a promise. You know, as a pastor, some of the most difficult things that I deal with here in our church when I engage in counseling, when I meet with folks in my office, some of the most difficult things that I deal with as a pastor are broken promises. From big promises to such as until death do we part, to little promises such as I'll be home at seven for dinner. Promises, promises, promises. We all make promises, and yet quite many of, quite many of those promises we often break. For some of us, just as soon as we make them, we break them. And yet we have to have them, don't we? I mean, if you consider Netflix... Or NATO. If you consider your personal entertainment, or if you consider the military alliance which holds the other superpowers of the world at bay, all of these things are structured around the idea of a promise. Banks give you your house based upon the promise that you'll pay for it over the course of of the next 30 years. You get a car based upon the promise that you will pay off the note on the car over the next five years or whatever the length of of time for that note may be. Our society is built on promises. The oft-quoted Herbert Agar made the statement first, civilization as we know it rests on a set of promises. Hannah Arendt, in describing this idea of promise, made the statement, promises are the uniquely human way of ordering our future making it predictable and reliable to the extent that this is humanly possible. When we make promises to each other, we're saying, if you do this, I'll do that. And if we hold to those promises, then the individuals who engage in that promise have some expectation, some understanding of what they can expect from the person that they're engaging in a promise with. Promises bind us to each other. And of course, We know that there is always uncertainty. We never know when any of us may perish or when any of us may die. But to the extent that it is humanly possible, promises are our way of trying to bring some understanding to what we can look for from the future. Promises are made to us 
by God. When Isaiah is being told that it's all going to end badly, deep gloom and anguish, don't believe them when they call you a conspirator, keep hoping in the Lord your God. When Isaiah is facing the certainty that it's all about to go off the rails and it's just a matter of time, God strengthens Isaiah with a promise. Looking to that promise, hoping in that promise. That is how Isaiah structures his life. That is how he makes his decisions about what he's going to do next. That is what ultimately brings meaning to his suffering. That is ultimately what draws him into faith with God. There are three things I want us to recognize here about this promise that God makes to Isaiah. There's first the promise itself. God makes promises from the opening pages of Scripture to their close, from Genesis to Revelation. God makes all kinds of promises. Some of them are grand. Some of them are not as grand as others. The whole story of God's redemptive activity, the whole thing of what he is doing, seems to be built around the plot device of promise-making and promise-keeping. God is concerned that we would believe in him. God is concerned that we would hope in him. And so he secures our faith, our hope, and our confidence by making a promise to us and then keeping that promise. It starts off with a series of little promises, and all these little promises are nested in the grand promise that there will be a final deliverance, that there will be an ultimate victory, and that you and I will one day not experience death and not live under the fear or the threat of disease or war or famine. The greatest promise of all is that we would be able to see God face to face. Those are grand promises. When I look out here at you, or when I look at myself in the mirror, the question presents itself time and time again. Who am I that I should ever be able to see God? There is no reason for me. There is no rhyme. There is no point whatsoever in me being capable of seeing somebody so majestic and so beautiful as the God of the universe other than that he promises it to me. What an incredible promise. Can I believe it? As I live my life, I see lots of reason to doubt. As I come painfully aware of the many moral shortcomings and imperfections, there is really no reason for me to expect to ever see God face to face, if I'm just being brutally honest with myself. Other than the fact that he said, if I would hope in Jesus... And trust in what he did on the cross. God would keep that promise. And I ought to believe him because he's kept every other one of them. Three things I want you to see about promise. Number one, God makes them. Do you and I make promises? Sure we do. Do we make them sometimes carelessly and flippantly without any real intention of keeping those promises? Sure we do. And yet, if we're going to imitate God, our Father, He seems to be concerned with us believing in what He said. He wants to be understood as a God who is true, who can be counted on. And so if we're going to walk with God, we're going to have to engage in this business of making promises, promises to our friends, promises to our family, ultimately promises to each other, and then striving to keep those promises by His grace. 
You'll notice that with any promise, there is the offer of the promise, and then there is the inevitable delay, and we hate the delay. My children, I think, would much prefer if there was no recognition that Christmas was coming, if all of a sudden it was just magically Christmas Eve, and I said, go to bed in the morning, it will be wonderful. No delay, instant gratification. I'm convinced. Whenever I start to decorate and we put the Christmas tree up, we begin a series of painful negotiations in which they say, can I just open one gift right now? And and then maybe another one tomorrow? Or maybe all of them right now? And then more tomorrow? To which, as a parent, I have to say, my child, no. No. You got to wait till December the 25th. We like promises. We want them immediately. And yet God's pattern is to give a promise and then to make us wait. There is a delay. Why the delay? Ultimately, for the sake of our character. His purpose in the canyon between the mountain peak of promise and the mountain peak of fulfillment is that we would be capable of walking with him, hoping in him, believing in him when the enemy and the world says we ought not. His purpose is faith. Which means that our lives are going to be spent waiting. Just like a kid waiting for Christmas morning. That's what you and I are doing. We are required every day to pay out patience. To suffer along is our lot as we become waiters waiting on the promises of God. Waiting is a part of our spiritual formation. Patience wasn't just a suggested fruit of the Spirit. It's a required part of being a Christian. The second thing that we notice about God is that his promises are often said to be covenantal. In other words, he's not just saying, I'm going to do this, and then he does it. He does do that. But he wants us to enter into a personal relationship with him through his promises in the way that a husband and a wife engage in promise-making and promise-keeping to each other. But it's not simply, I promise that I will always put a roof over your head and work hard at my job and make sure that you have clothes and that you're provided for. We do make that promise, but the reason that we make those promises is that we would engage in an exchange, a transaction of love. That's what God is doing. He doesn't simply say to us, hey, I'm going to fix the world's problems in due time. I've got my agenda, and here I go. He invites us to engage in him, to engage with him in covenant, to join him on his mission of salvation, that we would transact love from our heart to his and back and forth. His promises are personal. And number three, the third thing that we need to note about promises, there is the fulfillment When his promises are fulfilled, we experience a joy, a happiness that cannot be compared to anything else. I tried this week. Many of you are aware that I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. Now, this is my feeble attempt at trying to show you what I'm talking about when it comes to the fulfillment of promise. This is a team loaded with talent. By all rights, we should have won the Super Bowl last year. 
most of you probably aren't familiar with the Dallas Cowboys, but you will know that in the second game of the season, Tony Romo fractured his clavicle. He was hit from behind, taken down in a brutal hit, broke his shoulder, quarterback's out. If you understand the game of football, you know that that's basically the end of it. If you don't have a good quarterback, you've got nothing. And though we had a team loaded with talent, we won four out of 16 games last year. Should have won the Super Bowl, but only won four out of 16. Now, the promise of victory is there. If only we could just stay healthy. This season, we are healthy. And we're 10 and 1 on the season. And I have many friends who delighted in ridiculing me and my beloved Cowboys last year. (laughs) Amen. This year, I say to them, let us compare your record with our record. You mocked me and belittled me because of the love that I had for my team, and yet here this year, we are winning, and we are favorites to go all the way the distance down the stretch. Now, I take a sense of pride and satisfaction in that. But to be honest with you, there was a time during last season when I kind of would talk about any other sport besides football. (laughs) Following God is kind of like that. I want you to understand there's no direct comparison. This is my feeble effort to try to illustrate to you Taking God at his word often seems like a losing proposition. And ultimately, the payout time and again for obeying what God would have you to do, trusting in him, hoping in him, only seems to be another loss, another devastating injury, another unexpected turn of events that just brings you more sadness and more heartache and more sorrow. It feels like a losing season. But it is way worse than that. I want you to understand that the promise is there. It is loaded with potential. And it is backed by a God who intends to keep his word. Which means that the real secret of Christmas, the real meaning of lights on houses, is that no matter how dark it is, no matter how belittled you are for hoping in the promise of God, There is a dawn that is coming. If you can wait for it, you will experience the joy and the satisfaction of its realization. I decorate my house with Christmas lights. I put them on a photo sensor so that at dusk when the sun is setting, this little photo sensor will recognize that it's dark outside and it will flick my lights on for me so that I don't have to go out in the cold and do that manually. Well... I think it's broken or something, because last night, my lights didn't come on, and I was getting ready for bed. I have them come on at dusk. They generally go till about midnight, and then they shut off, and I was getting ready for bed last night about 10.30, and uh, I looked out my window, and there were no lights, and I thought, oh, this is problematic. I, what's going on here? Uh, my lights, in order for them to work, they require technology, and again, technology doesn't actually save us, does it? And it doesn't actually turn on te- the lights when you want it to. But God's promises are not like that. From Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby nursing at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she bore? Though she may forget, God says and he promises, I will never 
forget you. Hope in the promise of God and wait for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you make to us. We thank you, Lord, even though it is painful, we thank you for the weight that you make us go through as we look to the horizon for the coming of your son. We thank you, Lord, that you have kept all of your promises to this point, and we thank you, Lord, that we have no other expectation that is reasonable besides this, that you will keep all of your promises one day in your return to this world. And with the Apostle John, we pray, come quickly, Lord. We freely admit that like little children, we just have a hard time being patient and waiting for that beautiful Christmas morn of your return. We know that you're using this delay to work in us patience and hope and faith, but at the same time, Lord, we just, we cannot wait. So, Lord, help us to hope in you and help us to keep looking for your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.